0: I'm your host, Carly Jones, and this is Sorry I'm On Break, a Hope and Jones media production. Welcome back to season two of Sorry I'm On Break, episode three. Last week, we took a break to drop a project that Lena and I have been working on for the past year and a half. It was our very first novel. We wrote, edited, and published it together. It's called They Don't Love You Like I Love You. Actually, we um, published it in a in june we we published it actually on juneteenth but we just weren't ready to drop it yet because we were getting our website all together which we tested out perfectly and then it flunked and all these things and you know what we just kept going anyway and it is now available on our website com. so you can purchase it there or you can also search for it like In Google, you'll find it at Target and Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all these random places. Um, But They Don't Love You Like I Love You is a fictional tale inspired by our lives and different coming-of-age experiences. It follows the protagonist, Olivia, who is a sophomore in high school. And she is searching to find her way in the world amidst a tumultuous family life and what we call peer pressure. There are... Major themes like addiction, generational trauma, family and sexual violence that run throughout the novel, but you'll have to read more about it. However, in honor of They Don't Love You Like I Love You, we'll be digging into relationships with substances and the importance of family relationships, specifically the father-daughter relationship. Today, we're talking about addiction.
1: I would say from the moment I began using, I didn't realize where I was going or what my direction was, but I found out quickly later on in life. As I began to slide, if you will, to use that mindset, slide into the slippery slope of
0: other drugs. And our special guest, who you just heard talking, is Troy. Troy is a father and grandfather, a 25 years long business owner, a brother and an uncle, a man devoted to his faith, an entertainer, an athlete, a survivor of child incest, and a recovering addict. He's also my dad. His name is Troy Lee Jones. As y'all know, this season I'm having our guest lead our quick grounding mindfulness activity. So, to start my interview with my dad, I asked him what he does to check in with himself in place of a full self care day. My dad is a worker bee. As I said, he's a business owner and entrepreneur. So, he is constantly working. And if he's not working, he's scheduling and networking. And he's just, he definitely works hard for the breaks that he takes for himself. But in the times that he can't take a full break for himself, I asked him what his little check-in-with-himself routine is, and I think his response speaks volumes to his character.
1: How do I do what now? That's a good question, Carl. because. I don't have time for myself
0: already. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. I know it.
1: And, you know, I've been running and running and running. So I think the thing that I do is just I slow down. I stop. Yes. Just stop. Put everything yeah. on hold phone calls, text messages, voicemails, yep. emails. I just, I'm like, I'm not available.
0: I'm just not available. Yeah.
1: I'm not available. And I forced myself to take a couple minutes. Like, you know, for instance, I don't usually eat when I'm working. I'm usually trying to get the job done. But if you don't eat while you're working, you get, you're, you're probably working, you're using up more energy than you intend to use, you know. And so you're losing energy as well because you're not maintaining energy and you're trying to figure out what it is you're doing. So when you stop and force yourself to take the time, I usually, you know, um, it goes better for me is what I want to say.
0: So, in my dad's honor, we're all just going to stop for the next 10 seconds. It doesn't matter what you're doing. I just want you to stop. If you're washing the dishes, if you're driving, if you're going to work, if you're at work already. I don't know in other settings. If you're in the bathtub... And, and whatever else you may be doing while you're listening to this, whatever it is, we're just going to stop. I'm even going to stop talking. Ready? Go. Okay. That was a little bit more than 10 seconds, but you know, I hope that you all were not just holding your breaths that whole time. I hope you were breathing through those 10 seconds at whatever pace felt beautiful to you. And also, just a side note, I feel like if we all spent one hour a day taking sporadic 10-second stopping breaks, the world would just be like a better, cleaner, happier place. So, you know, here's to hoping that Sorry I'm On Break community starts making that a thing, okay? It starts with us. Each one to each one, pay it forward. That's our thing. We're stopping for 10 seconds. Maybe it's just five seconds, but I guarantee you, if you do five seconds, you're going to want more. Anyway, welcome to Season 2, Episode 3. Today we're talking about addiction. We felt like addiction was the perfect conversation to start discussing after divorce because of the roles that addiction and substance abuse play into the cycles of abuse, into the cycles of poverty, and into the cycles of mental health crises. The CDC and the Office for the Prevention of Domestic Abuse, they both report that over 90% of men who end up abusing their female partner have abused substances on that exact day of the assault. In 2017, it was reported that 15.5 million children live in homes with domestic violence. And that's just not, like, that's not even including the increase in violence since the pandemic, which... Since the pandemic, obviously things have escalated. And if you don't know, if you haven't heard these stats already, welcome, because I'm here to tell you that how to control your woman and, quote, how to hit a woman so nobody knows, those search terms, they were Googled at least 165 million times in 2020. He will kill me. It was Googled 107 million times. He beats me up was searched 320 million times. And just, you know, for the kicker, help me, he won't leave. That was Googled at least 1.22 billion, billion times. So clearly there's a link between domestic violence, substance abuse, and addiction, especially because substance abuse and addiction are touching at least 90% of these assaults that I'm talking about. But there's also a ton of misinformation and misrepresentation around substance abuse and addiction. And of course, the real life consequences it can have on families and communities of people. And if you really don't believe me that there's like misrepresentation of abuse, uh, of like, Substance abuse and addiction, especially in this day and age, like see Pulp Fiction, see the Wolf on Wall Street, see the Hangover, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, please don't see them because they don't deserve your money. But like, obviously, we've definitely it's undeniable. Like we've definitely, definitely hyper glamorized and then normalized the lifestyle of feeding toxins into our bodies. This is something that dates all the way back to like the 1920s when cigarettes were marketed as like sexual objects that helped you achieve upward mobility. Like they were literally seen as like penises. So obviously if drinking and drugging, indulgent eating, emotional shopping and obsessive gambling, if all of those things are so normal and viewed as luxurious or mainstream, how do you identify when you have a problem? Where does addiction stem from and why do people even start down that path? Honestly, these are just some of the judgmental questions that people who haven't like intimately or like personally themselves experienced addiction. They, they tend to ask these types of questions. And this is why my dad, he's here to change that narrative and to share a bit about his journey from addiction to recovery. Because again, in a society where substance use and abuse is normalized, when do you draw the line?
1: I was a really young kid. Smoking rolled-up paper bags, brown paper bags from the grocery store, thinking that we were cool, and uh, emulating what we saw adults doing. You know, we also smoked seed pods from trees that looked like cigars, long cigars, when we were kids. Again, we were just emulating what we were seeing. But in all actuality, an actual drug, I don't believe I began until I was a senior in high school. I smoked some marijuana before a football game uh, when I was in high school against our Crosstown rivalry and proceeded to play the worst game of my life some four and a half, five hours later. So I started out very innocent.
0: For Troy, and for most people, his introduction to substances was very innocent. It was also amongst a group of longtime, trusted family and friends who were also doing it with him. From smoking paper bag cigarettes to toking his first hit of weed, Troy didn't begin his journey walking into the cave of addiction with his loved ones standing at the sidelines, begging him to stop, scared, crying for his safety, begging and pleading. That No, that's not how it was. Troy walked hand in hand with his cronies, his cousins, and his classmates down into this path. And also,
1: I think over time, hanging around those individuals, you know, I never smoked again until I was in college, which was about a year later. Again, trying to fit in. I think because I was a Christian growing up in school and had very religious, strict religious boundaries. But I wasn't involved in a lot of the activities that some of my schoolmates and uh, colleagues were involved in. And I felt like an outsider a lot of the times. And I think I use substances to give me some chronic credibility with those individuals and make me feel like I was being accepted.
0: The power of feeling accepted, of feeling whole, of feeling complete and correct, it's everything. As humans, we're wired to find our existential place in the world. That craving to be loved and to fit in, it's not just as simple as the stereotype of peer pressure. No, it's way bigger than that. It's deeper. We're neurologically wired to seek, feel, and devote energy to maintaining human connection. Even antisocial introverts like me feel the need to have connections. And for Troy... The neurological need to be accepted by his peers was intensified by his experience of childhood sexual abuse, which we'll get into at a later episode. Over time, Troy's walk into the cave of addiction progressed into a slide.
1: As the old folks would say, it's a slippery slope. I would definitely agree that it is a slippery slope. The definition of that, so that people understand what a slippery slope is, it's like you're not going to oh, I'm going to use one time and slide down and I'm going to be an addict. That's not really how it happens. But for long exposure to an environment where substance abuse is going on or substance use even is going on, um, that's the slippery slope is that you think that, oh, I'm not going to be one of those guys. It's not going to affect me that way. And then... Then, bang, there you are, right? In the middle of something that you thought was being, you know, proponent for fun, is now uh, a habit. That oh, it was fun that time. Let's see if we can duplicate the fun this time. And therein is the slipper slope, right there. It's mm-hmm. the slipper slope.
0: And because addiction is so frequently disguised as substance use and on a bad night, maybe abuse? How do you realize when you're slipping? At what point does your substance use or abuse turn into a habit that makes you uncomfortable? What will be, or what has been, your last straw?
1: I don't think that happened until I... Well, it's like this thing that happens with you. You say, oh, I can manage this, I can manage that, until you can't, until you don't. And then you reason that away. You, oh, it's just a one-time thing. I'll never do that again, you know. But it's usually some kind of event that happens that is involving or has something to do with the substances, and that causes you to have a negative experience surrounding this whole idea that I'm doing it for fun. I'm having fun, except when it doesn't. It's not fun anymore. It's those times that you reflect back on it and go, "Wow." this is really, I, I really got a problem or I'm, it, you know, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a wake up. It's like, take notice of this,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, is this really where you want to go with this? Is this really what you're doing?
0: Exactly. And when
1: you do see it that way, um, uh, that's when you start to question. I think the first thing that would happen was I gotten, I gotten some legal problems. I got, uh, Pulled over by the police for drinking and driving.
0: It was moments like being pulled over drunk. Moments like arguing with his significant other and family members. Moments like not showing up as the sweet, sociable, and sober entrepreneur that he naturally is. And moments like missing his kids' first milestones that reminded my dad how not fun getting high and drinking really were. And still, because you don't hit rock bottom until you decided that you've hit rock bottom it wasn't until he was shot multiple times through the back and abdomen that my dad started truly seeking help
1: I never lost touch with my religion my religion never lost touch with me what I did was I pushed the religion aside my desire to do everything else was greater than my conviction about my religion. my religion was also at play as I was praying for help and when the help was presented, I was ready to embrace it because I realized that I was not in control anymore. Mm -hmm. And everyone around me could tell. I think when you start losing your true authentic self and you morph into a drug user self, you're very aware of who you are and where you're going and what you feel. Um, and how others feel about you. Mm. It depends on how you how you deal with all of that. Right. That makes you embrace your sobriety more or run away
0: from it. And Troy had to learn how to deal with all of that. All of the judgments and ridicule and failed expectations oozing from the people he loved most. Recognizing situations in which you don't have control and then letting the emotion, the angst, and the anxiety subside, it's one of the greatest skills of life to master, whether you're an addict or not. And in the program, they call it surrendering. So somewhere between the legal troubles, the hospital bed, and the relapses, my dad had to learn that fearing other people's judgment was a trigger for him. He had to learn how to cope with being alone in order to stay grounded in his authenticity. Regardless, and in spite of, any triggers
1: so for me right now being sober is a lot about me not wanting to put myself in a situation where I feel I'm being less than my authentic self and opening myself up for ridicule and judgment Mm -hmm. and things of that nature Mm -hmm. I don't want to give drug, any more of my life than I've already given it. Mm-hmm. I can't afford to let it have any more. It would probably just kill me. Yeah, I hear you. So I'm just tired of feeling that way. And I, want, I like the way I feel when I'm sober. It was great to get back in touch with myself again.
0: And on his journey through the cave of addiction into the open road of recovery, Troy didn't just stop with getting in touch with himself soberly. Oh no, my dad's an achiever, okay? You know me and Lena, we're ambitious. It stems from our parents. He started getting in touch with his kids, his family, his self as a romantic partner, his clients, and his friends, with all the bumps, lumps, and bruises included. But this time, he was clear-minded.
1: Even though people who know me and don't know that I'm sober still come up to me and try to get me high.
0: Right, right.
1: No. I'm cool. I don't want to do that. And you know what? You should stop. But.
0: Troy knows you can't force, convince, or coerce a person onto the road of recovery. Each person has to be open and ready to receive the help in order for that help to have the deepest and longest lasting impact. He's also done the work of going to therapy to develop the tools that he needs to define and then uphold the boundaries that are necessary for him to maintain his sobriety. He's gotten a sponsor, he works the program, he knows where the meetings are and when. And even when he's in environments where the people that he loves, especially the people that he loves, box him into the stereotype of being an addict, he still loves himself. He's found the way how. What do you love most about yourself, dad?
1: Well, I love that I am a tireless, hardworking man. I just continue to go, go, go. I love that I have the uh, a- ambition and discipline to get up every day and do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I like to pay check. You know, obviously, I like getting paid what I get paid I don't think I can make the same amount of money doing any other occupation that I've been trained to do except this one and um, I like that um, I get to control my destiny
0: mm.
1: no one else and I, have to, you know, I like when I say I want to take some time off I can take the time off without asking for it you know just tell my customers I'm going to be on hold. I'll see you in two weeks. And that's what it is. No, no, I have to ask a governing board if they have time Mm -hmm. for me to take the time off because they're going to miss me. They only give me a minimal amount of things to do in the two months of time. So I could have been gone anyway. That's the big thing is time time management. It gives me time freedom.
0: And I think your your commitment, dad, to maintaining your freedom um, and maintaining your own agency—it's it, one of the things I love most about you, and it's one of the things that I I hope to be like replicating in my own life. And just like it's something that I aim I, I aim to to replicate in my own life to like maintain my boundaries around my agency as much as possible, and and say like no, I'm in control of what I'm going to do and like what my day is and what my, my mood is, my tempo, my temperature, and this is how it's going to be. This I'm going to walk accordingly. Yeah, okay. I agree. As y'all know, I'm asking each guest an on-the-spot question at the end of our talk. So, when I asked my dad which modern-day artist he would choose to be his mentor for a school year, his response was...
1: Modern-day. Yeah. Modern meaning from alive and yes alive.
0: <laughs> really it just means alive and still doing it
1: well I, I like Christian artists mm-hmm. to be honest with you I think Lecrae has a very powerful message hey. I relate to him and uh He's a lot younger than me, so I don't know what he could model for me in my life right now that I haven't already experienced. Mm-hmm. But, so I would say an older Christian artist might be someone like uh, a Donnie McClurkin.
0: Oh.
1: Um, and you can listen to his stuff and, and or, um yeah, um, B.B. Wynan, B.B. and C.C. Wynans, B.B. winin' is another it's very strong. So I, I would, you know, I don't think there's any hip hop artist that I would want to have model for me anything. <laughs>
0: that's, that's totally, totally appropriate. That's totally appropriate. Right. Yes. Next week, my dad will be back and we'll talk about his relationship to parenting and more specifically his identity and relationship to fatherhood. If you want to read, review, and share our book, They Don't Love You Like I Love You, you can do so by visiting hopeandjonesmedia.com or by searching for They Don't Love You Like I Love You on Target, Amazon, or barnesandnoble.com. Before we close out, let's just give another 10 second stop so we can come back into our present moment and the rest of our day. Thank you all for listening. Let's take 10. All right. Thank you all for the support. Thank you for listening. We appreciate and love you and we'll see you next week to talk about fatherhood. Bye-bye.